on drugs with David Birnbaum. Hey, Rucka, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, so today we're going to talk about drugs, and I want to talk about why it's important and difficult to talk about drugs. Um, this is an important thing for me personally. You know, I've struggled with uh, stopping my weed use multiple times, um, and I also hear about you know, I'm dismissed that weed is not a problematic thing. You cannot get addicted to it. I hear a lot of mixed messages. Um, I'm wondering why you think that is. And also, you know, many people aren't willing to talk about their own use um, publicly. So for you, why is it important and difficult, I suppose, to have these sorts of conversations? I mean, for me, it's not difficult, but uh, I think a lot of people have a hard time being objective about things they may themselves um, sort of be in denial about, um, either in their own habits or people in their life that have like an unhealthy habit. I mean, addiction is a is a thing that affects probably billion, billions of people, either directly or, or you know, secondhandly, like kind of through their family members or, or spouse or, or whatever it is. Um, so psychology as such, I think, is probably a very young uh, science with a lot left to be discovered, maybe we would agree that until psychologists can control for people's philosophical um, like premises and all the contradictory philosophy f- premises that they've been sort of living with, until they understand that and control for that, there, there's going to be a lot of errors probably, or just a lot that's unknown. So psychology as such, there's a lot we can get from it. A lot of uh, probably great therapy we can get a lot of great stuff i'm sure we can get from the field but uh when it comes to something like addiction i think it's sort of like the most mis under 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 misunderstood or just mm-hmm. the least understood um as far as i know because people try to they try to deal with it like um okay here's what studies tell us about addiction but you need to bring your own like firsthand, like experience and introspective evidence into the so-called study. So it's very difficult to trust a study. Anyway, I don't trust studies more than I trust my own firsthand knowledge. Right. So it's interesting. You kind of immediately bring up addiction when I, when you know I talk about drug use, and that's interesting to me as well because you know I almost say there are people who are kind of just totally anti-drugs because of. Um, philosophical views or like religious views or whatever it is. Um, and there's rationalizers. That's the, that's basically the way my mind seems to sort it. People make excuses for why it's acceptable. And, you know, I don't encounter much of a difference between the person who says it's fine for them to have, you know, two glasses of wine whenever they want. And the person who says it's fine for have to have a joint every day. Right. But, you know, I don't know if they'd view themselves as the same, but that's what I encounter. And so it was really difficult for me. I didn't agree that, okay, it's morally wrong to take drugs, like in an intrinsic sense, like, oh, just drugs are bad. Um, But on the flip side, the only other messages I was getting is like, oh, live and let live or whatever it is, like, you know, um, that sort of thing. And, And a very dismissive attitude when I would talk about how like, 
you know, I don't think I want to do drugs. And people were saying, no, like, it'll help you, like, just like ease your anxiety, like almost encouraging me to uh, do it more. And do you see it as a similar framing? Or, you know, why did your head jump to addiction uh, so quickly? I guess uh, when you bring up drugs, it, it sort of brings to mind uh, addiction. Um, I mean, I don't, I can't really like prescribe to people like whether it's okay for them to ever do drugs. Like uh, I could, I could sort of uh, imagine a a healthy person with a great life who, let's say, on New Year's Eve takes some LSD or something and has like a ten hour sort of trip vacation. Um, and of course, there's a risk in that something could come up and they're not going to be alert for, it, for instance, or Maybe they're not as um, internally secure as they would have thought, and they end up kind of um, flipping out. I mean, there's there there are things that go wrong when people do drugs. I know LSD is one of the more kind of like dramatic things to uh, take. So maybe like for instance, someone smokes some marijuana on New Year's Eve. I don't see that that being the end of the world. But I think something I could say with a certain degree of confidence. Generally, if you have a history of abusing drugs or alcohol, I, I use those interchangeably. If you have a history of abuse, it's probably true that you could never really, that you should probably um, abstain. And that comes with a, an entire um, overhaul of the, of the way you, you look at, um, at drugs and you know, I mean, people could could argue with me about this. They can resist it. I'm just telling you what I personally, how mm. I personally see it. If you have that history of abuse, you're probably never going to be able to do drugs like a kind of like a normal person again. And right. I, I include alcohol in that as well. Yeah. And, and for me, it's interesting to kind of think about, well, what is the line of, quote, abuse? Because there's, you know, again, there's many people who... I would say they use it to a degree that it detriments their life, but they don't view it that way. And, and the culture, in terms of at least my interpretation of the culture, wouldn't view it that way. And there's almost this, you know, apologist nature for marijuana use in particular, um, but alcohol use to a certain extent and in, in certain circles as well. Um, so how does someone go about, I mean, the answer is to try and be objective, but it's hard to be objective about, um, you know, your own circumstance sometimes and, and to communicate it to others as I think, you know, I know you're not, you know, in the gutter because of your use, but I definitely think you could be living a better life if you weren't drinking or smoking or whatever, as much as you think is, is okay. I mean, the question of sort of persuading someone that they have a problem is a tough one. And Basically, you can't. I mean, um, well, depends if but, you're if, if you have like a dependent, like if you're in a co uh, if you're married to them or you're related, mm -hmm. you there are experts. There are there is like a a a profession, a built or like a cottage industry built around uh, interventions and stuff like that. But generally speaking, unless it's really unless um, it's really uh, really affects you, what other people another person does, you don't. You just don't lie to them. You don't enable them. And if they ever want help, they know they can come to you. But other than that, you just kind of lead by example. Uh, but like, I think to answer your question, um, I, I, I go ahead. I want to zoom out a bit because I know how mm -hmm. difficult it could be in a specific 
instance, but I think many people, it's harder to convince them because of the culture and what it, how it treats this use and, and that sort of thing. So I'm wondering if, if you have any thoughts on why that's the culture or, or the prevailing narrative as well, that it's just okay, it's just acceptable to use these things. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I was going to say about that, there is a lot of um, kind of downplaying of the damage it does. So it's perfectly uh, normal in the culture that it's expected. Yeah, like when you're of a certain age, you're going to get blackout drunk. Um, and even a- as you're an adult, it's perfectly healthy and kind of normal to get drunk a few times a week or whatever. I don't really see it that way. Um, so I'm pretty, pretty um, prude about alcohol, mm-hmm. even even just drinking beer as a mood stabilizer. I don't think an outside substance should be your mood stabilizer. But again, I can't convince somebody of that. Um but like my my main answer to all of this is uh, kind of when it comes to um, how are people going to realize this, which might be one way of articulating what maybe you're, you're getting at is it's people's own values. It's a person's own values that need to be sort of um, their, their at their focal point, you know. So for me, like believe. So, I mean, the day after we record this, I'm, I'm going to be uh, nine years sober. So nine years clean and sober. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. I mean, not there yet. Got one day left. But um, when I decided to clean up my act, I, nobody was telling me to do it. Um, I was, you know, my I had I had a really, really cool success story that was happening for me. I nobody cared if I smoked weed. Nobody cared if I got drunk. I was doing fine, sort of, as far as anyone else was concerned. And some people would have even might, might have liked me to kind of be a little bit high and drunk. Um, either friends who enjoyed uh, doing it with me or e- even like professionally, maybe some people saw me as, as someone they could work with that in that under the, those circumstances. But, but it was my own values at stake. I realized, first of all, I'm not enjoying any of this. And also my, my creativity is not going to be what I need it to be unless I turn my internal world into like a business that I'm running, where I'm taking inventory, where I'm um, planning, where I'm just cleaning up everything, where I'm keeping it clean. So kind of uh, turning mental health into kind of like a business that I'm running and where the bottom line is creative output, which hopefully will lead to money as well. Um, So it was my own kind of values that I was uh, focused in on. And that's the only way I think anyone is ever going to um, get clean for the right reasons. So unless they see, unless they have values that they're aware of and they see those values at risk, um, what, unless that is the case, what it, what ends up happening is what is usually the case with anyone who has a substance abuse problem is that we put, we sort of, uh, make drugs our central purpose, you know, like you, maybe your career would be if you're healthy, Drugs become your central purpose and your career and your marriage and everything else is sort of integrated towards that, towards your ability to get high. And sadly enough, that is your kind of the love of your life that you can't bear to um, turn away from. So it has to be a greater value that you conclude, like, let's say my career, my creative career matters to me more than this incredible feeling I get from getting high. And it is hard because when you're high, you're thinking, like, how could this be wrong? You know? Oh, it feels so right. Uh, same when you when you're drunk. You know, how could this be wrong? Um, so it needs to be. It needs to be values in reality that you're motivated toward. 
Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'll stipulate, I suppose, that some people might get lost by saying that the drugs become their central purpose because they they wouldn't view it that way. People who, you know, I might consider as having an, a substance abuse issue and, and they don't because it's almost like more obvious when it really becomes uh, the central purpose. And I think there's a lot of gray in society right now. But I, I definitely agree with the, the value centric approach. And, you know, la- the, the first time you and I spoke, we ended up speaking about this quite a lot. Because I was saying, you know, I was still using weed and you basically put it to me black or white, black and white, like this is detrimenting your values because you're not achieving your values. You're not pursuing your values when you're taking a night off to just smoke and do whatever. Um, And I think that's a really important point. And it's difficult for many people to understand because they don't have a clear idea of what their values are, what the values they're pursuing are. I, um, you know, I recorded an episode of another show with a friend about whether or not it's good to get drunk. And afterwards, a friend of mine said, yeah, well, like every weekend he was drinking because he didn't really have anything else to do. But like, maybe he doesn't have anything else to do because he's always drinking. And it's like, how it's it's hard for me to imagine not being able to come up with something I could do to add value to my life. Um, But for many people, they don't have that orientation. They don't think about how do I build up my life more and so they just kind of do something to, you know, fill the day rather than trying to build value into their life. And I think that's why people don't have this value orientation. And so drugs are something that's just, yeah, I can do it and fill my day with this the same way I could read a book or go loafed at the park. Like drug use is just something to do. Um, what do you think of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's a, there's a lot. In, in a sense, you're asking me the same question over and over, which is great. In a sense, I'm saying like it give it, it it's like another angle on sort of the same point. I'm I'm trying to uh, clarify. Mm. Um, by the way, I mean, what I told you last time was because you told me you have a past of getting blackout drunk. So yeah, it's not like so. It's conceivable that someone could just be like very high strung and they're functioning and they're rational and then just here and there or however often they they they're they ha- they take some marijuana that literally calms them down and there are mm. strands of th of weed that doesn't even get you high it literally just yeah. calms you nerve and i there's a lot i don't know about all that so it yeah. is conceivable a person with no substance abuse history could be let's say even drinking alcohol or doing whatever drug it happens to be on a certain every so often where it's conceivable that that's not really getting in the way i'm saying it's conceivable like i don't know everything i'm just saying what i do i do know about is people with a history with that Mm. skeleton in their closet and once you have that once you've made once you struck that deal with the devil at one point it i don't i don't see that devil ever going away i see it as always in the next room doing push-ups um (laughs) and um and what I'm telling you today, because um, you say you're 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 doing better in abstaining from weed, I I will sort of parrot what drug counselors have told me in in my early days of sobriety, and they say when where there's a pattern, there's a problem. So mm-hmm. um, I I would really uh, treat this abstinence like a like a very very serious value, and kind of treat it like an official program if if mm-hmm. you're open to that. So I, I would. Uh, I would I would say congratulations on what you've accomplished, but by no means uh, am I saying you know you're out of the woods. But that's for you to figure out as you as you move forward. Toward forward. Now, uh, as for people who sort of they could sort of get by 
a lot of people are going to get by with sort of that state of limbo with that what i see as sort of sort of purgatory you know mm. for me it's heaven or hell right. for me i i can't i can't pick that middle ground for me it just doesn't work why well, don't i don't think it works generally speaking it doesn't and you know we both have an, like an objectivist background where like where ayn rand in a such a like um like decisive way declares like either you're like to live is more than breathing like to live means living as a man and that means actively building and i mean building i'm paraphrasing like, aiming at the best you yeah. can conceive of which to so many people they're like well what do you mean you're literally alive and and the only way i think to really understand what rand means is again by looking at your values and and her, her you know her book the fountainhead for instance gives you like that vision of 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 independence and and the pursuit of values and all that so it needs to come from a personal place so but um but it, you know in terms of kind of getting by and and being able to coast through life maybe some people can sort of find that functioning um state where let's say they're able to keep the job that they want and even get a promotion every so often and it's not necessarily true that every person who kind of tries to strike that balance is going to um lose it i just know for me that's not like that's not going to happen sounds like it's the same for you and sounds like we're both doubtful about those people in a state of uh state of limbo i'm just i, I try my best to to limit my um to limit my universal statements to just people with a with a with a serious um past like with a serious abuse abuse uh, substance abuse past yeah. um yeah that makes a lot of sense and one thing that just came to mind is you know i just finished reading the fountainhead and and i can't really imagine rourke while he's waiting um you know for a commission smoking a joint every week to help the time pass more quickly it just doesn't seem uh like would happen but i'm i'm interested in diving into i suppose what creates more people what cause isn't the right word but what causes more people to have this bad history because you know i definitely do think more people have it than they think and you know in university i started drinking heavily just because it was the thing the people were doing and it was a culture of heavy drinking, heavy partying, and it was a joke. You're not an alcoholic until you graduate, right? Like as long as we're students, it's acceptable. And then I see after university, some people stop. I struggled even though I wanted to stop. And I have many friends who still party hard and maybe they just do it less because they're, it's more a matter of convenience. But it seems like the, the culture I was. Uh, brought up in was telling me this was a positive. It was good to party. It was good to get blackout drunk and 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 whatever else. Um, so what do you, what do you think of like the state? Because that's why I view it as important. Because I think there are more and more young people being fed into the same ecosystem I was fed into, which is a problem. I mean, it's hard for me to have all the answers about how that came to be, but I, I know that a culture doesn't just emerge in a, in a void. Uh, the, the, the attitude that a culture has towards getting blackout drunk through your college years, it comes from somewhere, and the people who participate in that ritual, um, I tend to think are kind of living with some degree of neurosis. Um, and that neurosis probably comes in many forms, and like so for me i grew i i was raised in a very religious environment for me a lot of kind of um contradictions probably came from that whereas a lot of other people they didn't at all have that same kind of uh childhood but they're 
more like, let's say, public school upbringing, it, it sort of gave them sort of a big void, um, which also brings a bunch of contradictions. Um, but nonetheless, it's it's hard for me to apply my experience to like other people. So I could I could speak firsthand and say um, neuroses for me, I think, came largely from contradictions, kind of like reason versus faith or egoism versus altruism to a degree we're all kind of in a way living by reason and rational egoism just simply by virtue of being alive and functioning and when we're growing up we see the adults living that way to a large degree but also we're being told you know that true knowledge doesn't come from reason it comes from you know, faith, it comes from the community, it comes from other people. And of course, morality is not selfish. Morality is primarily about other people or about God. And maybe there's a little bit of selfishness permitted once they're all taken care of. Um, and having that contradiction, I think, creates neurosis. It creates um, a desire to escape. It creates a, like a high level of discomfort and which, of course, you know, guilt. So, that's kind of how I see it. I mean, that's that's how I like to that is what I attribute a lot of the um, indulgence that I see the the, the, the hedonism that uh, we see around us. I don't I don't think it's written in our in our DNA. Like, I don't I don't think it's a, just a part of the human experience. I don't think it's just a uh, a tale as old as time. But like, that's also something that I heard at some point growing up. Like, yeah, ever since man has been around, whether he's meditating or, you know, inventing alcohol and drinking it, or this drug, or this poppy seed, man has always tried to reach that next, that other state. And that was something I heard, which, of course, as like many young people, I was impressionable and thinking, yeah, yeah, this is normal. This is just a part of the human experience. Again, it's conceivable that mind-altering substances are conceivably part of a rational life, but I would by no means say they're a necessary part of a rational life or that like human beings were meant to use this type of so-called technology. I, I would not, uh, I would not assume that. Yeah. And one thing that, you know, bringing it back to, to values it, I, I recorded an episode on ARI, the Ayn Rand Institute's uh, channel with Ankar Gatte about drugs. And, you know, you and I talked about that um, previously as well. And, and, you know, I think there might be some things in his approach that I disagree with. Um, but the one thing that really stuck out, stood out when I, when I rewatched it after our conversation was that he really emphasizes that only if you kind of are certain this is adding value to your life. And I think that's what really switched my thinking is I wasn't certain it was adding value to my life. It was just felt like at best a neutral thing. Um, and I think that's what it is for a lot of people. It's just a neutral thing. Um, and so it's like, why not? They don't have an argument as, oh, yeah, this the ayahuasca will definitely certainly add value to my life. Some people might think that. But for me, many of my peers, it's like, well, why not experiment? What, like, there's no harm in it. And so it's this idea of add you add things to your life, not because of a value you think they get, but just, you know, why not? What, there, there's no harm. Um, so it's like, again, this different orientation, maybe. Yeah, I mean, how I sort of interpreted your conversation with Dr. Gatte was that he was telling you, don't replace objectivism with your actual knowledge. That's how I took it. So I, like you, disagreed probably with general his general um, 
statements about alcohol, but also I don't think his statements about alcohol in that, in that interview were like his, the final, you know, ARI statement on alcohol at all. I think what I took from that was he was telling you like, use your own judgment. And when, if, if drinking, drinking a beer after work is something that a lot of people do, they're not all alcoholics. It's not making them so detached from reality that they're now in the animalistic state then, you know, think about this firsthand and and use your own judgment is how I took what he was saying. So we don't need to just take like objectivism over here says, you know, perceive reality and live according to it. So by that, therefore, anything that tampers with your perception is now immoral. I was I sort of took him as saying, like, slow down, make sure you agree with with like, make sure you understand and agree with objectivism rather than like just slamming it uh, it, it, like kind of wiping aside everything, you know, firsthand and just, um, uh, just jumping straight to explicit philosophical sort of, um, prescriptions. Um, yeah. I was coming from a Buddhist background or, mm-hmm. or in my thinking, not in my upbringing. Um, and so that was, yeah, just like anything that like affects the mind is negative. Cause like the mind needs to be kept pure. Mm-hmm. So when I first uh, started meeting like real life objectivists around 2013, so I was already a couple years sober and and I was trying to understand, like, how does this this um, this issue, which is such a big part of my life, like recovery. And I was actively going to 12 step meetings. Like, how does this relate to objectivism, which like Ayn Rand was still like number one in my world since reading her about nine years earlier as a teenager, like. I was like, this novelist, this philosopher is like my hero. This is like someone I want to learn from um, as much as possible. So how, but, but yeah, but yet what Rand is saying on the surface seems to conflict with some of the um, stuff I'm hearing from the 12 step people. And in my own inner world, I'm not sure how to reconcile these things. So the kind of the big uh, question I had when meeting objectivists was like, do you know much about addiction? Did Ayn Rand talk about this? Did any objectivist write about this? And one of the people I got to meet was on Cargate around, I think, 2014. I asked him about this. And if I recall, his response was basically, no, there's not that much objectivist work on this subject. So, um, you know, I would kind of bring that up again, just like I don't I don't think he's claiming to uh, be the final stop on this issue either. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a great opportunity to sort of uh, separate the tools that we get from a philosophy like objectivism. And remember, there is also like empirical concretes to um, to sort of apply this method to. Um, but I, I've, I've done a lot of uh, thinking over the over the years about how like the 12 step program consists with objectivism and if it does so. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and it kind of segues into what I want to talk about next, which is kind of the point of this show and what I'm hoping to do, uh, you know, hopefully with you again and other guests is I do think the introspective experience and, and like understanding what people's experiences are with drugs, trying to stop drug use or why they think it adds value to their life. Like that's what I'm really interested in, but it seems a lot of people are very hesitant to talk about their experiences. Um, you know, there's an aspect of some drugs are illegal and, and people don't want to admit their use. But it seems to me broader than that. I don't know if it's, you know, a holdover. It's almost, in my view, like sex and drugs are two of the things that are still politically incorrect because of the like religious right. Um, And so it's like almost a holdover of this more traditional view. 
But, you know, I really do hope people will come on and share and think about these things because that's how we start to really learn and, and understand this stuff. Um, so what, do, what are your thoughts on in terms of your willingness to share or not share and, and you know, people generally, why they might have uh, certain views on, on that? I guess uh, as far as other people, I would need to see some concrete examples of them being embarrassed to talk about it and, and to kind of have an opinion. Uh, uh, but like right now that what you said is just kind of a general, a generalization that I can't really, I mean, I, like I said earlier, I think the topic of addiction is, is an embarrassing one for a lot of people because it's like, it's uncomfortable and it's sort of, um, it sort of clashes with, with how a lot of people see the world, you know, including a lot of objectivists, for instance, like, if man is rational and if man has free will and all of that, then why would a why would an alcoholic need more than one second to turn his life around? Which on paper, so to speak, that's right. You know, man has the ability. But however, in reality, when an adult person, I mean, biologically adult has a substance abuse history or has a dependency on something and it can be marijuana, which is they say not addictive, but yo. I mean, take it away from a pothead. Take his weed away and see it, see how he uh, see how he reacts. Yeah. Um, in reality, what what I like I mentioned earlier, a an addict uh, substitutes their drug of choice with their central purpose. Like it becomes their central purpose, and that was the case for me. As much as I, as a teenager and into early my early twenties, as much as I loved music, entertainment, as much as I had big, grandiose dreams, I knew the only way any of that could ever have any meaningful um, and a meaningful place in my life is if I have the ability to smoke weed as well. And that's all my values integrated towards that purpose of having a space to sit and smoke some weed. Um, and ultimately, the only way to break free of that is to make sobriety equal life. Um, is to treat sobriety as the standard. Um, and, you know, and, and, and people would say like, is it that, do you have that big of a problem? I never thought you had that big of a problem. And over the years, um, I've sort of sharpened my answer to that, which is like I mentioned a few minutes ago, the way that Ayn Rand emphasizes like living is not the same as not dying, you know, like living is living qua man, which means striving for your full capacity. And, um, and that's what it means to me to say that sobriety equals life. Again, it's conceivable that a lot of people could live, could have life as their standard of morality and getting a little bit tipsy or drunk here and there is a part of that. That's conceivable, I'm saying. I don't have a definitive answer on that. But when it comes to someone like me, I'll just use myself here as the only case study. In my case, it, 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 it came to the point where I needed to just completely walk away from this um, from this devil. And and that meant life equals sobriety. Life, you know, life equals striving for the maximum potential, which for me was included sobriety as kind of the main the main sort of value, I guess, or this or I guess the standard of value in that it is equals life. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. And I'm interested now in, you know, you you did like a series on your channel of kind of your your process of uh, recovery. Um, you're, you're talking to me now about this. Why do you talk about it? Why is it? Uh, is it important to you? Or you just kind of happen to do it? 
why share your story? Why, why um, help? The series I did on my, did on my commentary channel, which is sort of still always kind of an ongoing work in progress, though I've, I've, I've taken a bit of a long break, um, is called How to Live Sober. And it was meant to kind of um, sort of flesh out my thoughts that I've had over the years about relating the world of recovery with objectivism and in my understanding of it. Uh, do these two worlds conflict and how? Now, um, what I talk about in that series is largely how it, like internal contradictions are a serious problem. And like I mentioned, uh, whether it's in epistemology, like reason versus everything else, or or in ethics, feeling guilty for being selfish. So now your own survival, your own anything that's of concern to you is now at odds with morality. I mean, and when people actually believe that, which people do, which I did, which virtually everyone in man's history has in some way or another, um, that creates neurosis, that creates a, a discomfort and a desire to escape, which becomes like, uh, which is kind of what ends up making alcohol your central purpose, which then to take that away from, from, from a person, taking alcohol away from them, telling him to rather telling him to walk away from alcohol, it becomes like telling, you know, an architect to walk away from his, uh, his work when that's his, uh, his central purpose. So it's possible, but the person needs to, re um, readjust their internal hierarchy they need to change that and and that's going to be a painful process so i ended up um that series ended up kind of becoming a kind of book study on opar by leonard peikoff so i was reading that book alongside doing that series and a lot of the episodes ended up being kind of uh, articulating what i was reading in that book so there's probably a couple errors or maybe more than a couple in there in that aspect but but the important stuff to me, like the, 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 I should say, the distinguishing aspect of that series is relating the 12-step program to objectivism. Do the two conflict in essence? And in, in essence, I don't think so, because um, the essence of the 12-step program is not, you know, a higher power that is mystical. The essence of the 12-step program is a very Aristotelian uh, view on ethics. First of all, it's a, it's, it's been called a selfish program. It's there to benefit you, the practitioner here in reality today. I mean, you're there to be sober today, not in the afterlife, not for your neighbor to be sober, not for your grandchildren. And that's rare. I mean, that's rare to have that kind of uh, take on morality, even though the literature of AA um, often says, you know, selfishness is the root of all our problems. But I think what they mean to say is selfishness as it's commonly uh, understood, right. which is uh, short-sightedness, evasion. Mm. Um, so, uh, like I advise the audience in doing that series, I said, anytime there's a philosophic conflict between objectivism and the literature of AA, of course, objectivism is right. It's a philosophy, and it's a magnificent genius philosophy, whereas AA is, it's a it's a sort of manual, a list of suggestions to kind of help you get through today sober. So definitely philosophically, uh, there should be no conflict at all. But but also um, look at look for the essence, look for the essential in in all of these things. And when it comes to um, a rehabilitation center, what is their essence? They're they're going to tell you all types of things. Don't be, maybe they'll tell you don't be selfish. You've been so selfish. But in essence, what they're doing is they're telling you be more selfish. They're saying, take your life seriously. They're telling you, you're going to die if you don't 
reach for the best in you. Um, that's what any good rehab is doing. And same with the 12-step program. They're saying, in essence, do this for you. And reality has the final word. That's another thing. You cannot uh, choose a higher power that co contradicts reality. If you drank yesterday, there's no higher power that can undo that fact. You can't go into a meeting and say, hey, I drank this morning, but my higher power says I didn't really drink. So I'd like my one year my one year chip today because my higher power actually says I've been sober for a year. Of course, this so-called higher power, it's more like a, of a deist sort of take on God, kind of like nature is nature. And God is sort of there when you're out of um, glue. You need some glue to stick it all together. But of course, objectivism, it goes far beyond all that. It, it, it sort of, it's the sort of final um, stage of the enlightenment, if we, could, if we could look at it that way. And it can... Similarly, it can take this, what I see as a very enlightenment type of program, which is the 12 steps, and kind of improve on it and kind of um, flesh out what's good about it, what works about it, and, um, you know, take, take, uh, keep, preserve our, the Aristotle elements and get out Plato. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I definitely encourage anyone who, who's interested to check out that, uh, that series. Um, I think we'll we'll end it here. I'm wondering if you'd be open to coming on some other time and we can dive more into kind of your experience and, and you know, if specific drugs and, and like kind of, because this series will be exploring, you know, all things drugs. And I think it'll be interesting if you're open to it to talk about some of that stuff too. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe that's what you were hoping to discuss today, but I ended up turning it into a an addiction discussion. Is that what happened? I didn't I didn't realize. Is it? No, is no. It, uh, it was kind of like today. The goal wasn't to talk about any specific thing, but to talk mm -hmm. about it broadly. We talked about it broadly from a different perspective than I expected, but that's all right. I think it was uh, very valuable still. Yeah, I tend to hijack interviews. Um, if you look at some of my others, I tend to do that. So well, uh, consider yourself, um, I guess. I have, I have my, uh, I have to get prepared for the next one. Then I'll hold you in place, maybe. Well, okay. maybe next time around, we'll 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 stick to what it is you had in mind because I got a bunch off my chest here today. No, I, and I, I thought it was really valuable. So, I, mm -hmm. so I appreciate. It. Do you have any last thoughts for for anyone? Uh, I guess, uh, you know, the remember the word values is so um, is so essential in philosophy in a in a proper philosophy. Values are kind of where your life begins. If you kind of think back to your early life, you know, what are your earliest memories kind of looking at different objects and and having an opinion about them? You know, I like this. I don't like that. Or this this red is bright. You know, just having some sort of opinion that comes with your perception that's kind of where the human experience begins and values are also what it's going to take to, um, to take ethics seriously and in turn to, uh, to pursue the good life and to enjoy that life and be happy. So, um, so that, uh, you know, whenever it comes to, um, sort of wanting to change the world, you know, be, be the change that you wish to see to, to quote, probably someone I don't, I don't often agree with, uh, Gandhi, but you might as a Zen guy. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Rekha.